Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. On today's Making Contact... Like, your identities are connecting you to different kinds of security politics or not. Um, and I think that that is... That has been something that I've been reflecting on a lot during this process. Um, and I think that that could be something helpful, something um, generally helpful for, for people who are maybe a little exhausted about thinking about our national politics here right now and our, or maybe their local politics here right now, to take a moment to step back, look at this other city that has, I think, been stereotyped in many ways as like this idealistic, beautiful place, which it is. I mean, I love I love Paris. And I think that there is like a This American Life show where um, a black woman on the show talked about, you know, loving Paris is like loving the most attractive person in the room. Um, and that's that's pretty boring. But at the same time, I also think that maybe loving Loving the postcard of Paris is a little bit like loving maybe just the face and upper chest of the most attractive person in the room, as opposed to sort of like seeing them as a full per person, you know what I mean? And, and I think that what keeps drawing me back to Paris as a Black American is how incredibly diverse and diverse in a different way than than I um, experienced growing up in the United States and how incredibly rich, like just rich the history of that city is. We jump across the Atlantic Ocean to visit Paris, France. Well, I wish I did, but today's producers are there or have been there and they're helping me disrupt some long-held myths about one of the most romantic cities in the world. A city whose identity design, architecture, ooze that particular quality synonymous with beauty and romance. And sure, that Paris that filmmaker Francois Truffaut so faithfully built up in the French New Wave cinema is still that. But it's also the city that is deeply familiar with revolution, with national strikes, and lest we forget the specters of colonialism, which still come to fore. So what does Paris look like currently after the numerous terrorist attacks, does mixité or social mixing provide a salve for their current situation and their future? I'm your host, RJ Lozada. Stay tuned. Jessica Myers and Adelie Posman-Ponte are producers with the podcast Here There Be Dragons. The show explores major cities with an anthropological lens and teases out nuances that challenge a typical understanding of how individuals navigate and identify with their city. For this Making Contact segment, they engage Parisians, both native and immigrant, about the post-terrorist attacks. You might remember the horrifying news we've heard from Paris as terrorist attacks rocked the city. Three attacks in the past two years. The one on November 13, 2015, left 130 people dead and 413 injured. These attacks led to increased media attention and speculation as to whether France's capital was safe, what to do from there, and who to blame. Although the attacks in Paris happened over a year ago, the shock they left in their wake is still visible throughout the city. 
For places like Place de la République and around affected bars like the Belle Equipe and the Petit Cambodge, the candles, graffiti, signs, and flowers left after the attacks have been swept into the National Archives. The Bataclan, the concert hall where the most brutal attacks happened, has recently reopened. Plaques now memorialize the dead, replacing spontaneous shows of grief. But even now, residents still struggle with how to return to normal. It's a bit noisy though, isn't it? But I think it's probably spinning. It's probably getting to the end of its... Yeah, I can try and, sw I can try and switch it off. Okay, I'm, my name's Alison Culliford and I'm 48. I'm a journalist and translator and I grew up in Somerset, England. And I came to Paris, but when I came to Paris, I really felt this is the place that I want to live. I was actually very near to the Belle Equipe shooting, just a couple of streets away, and was locked in a bar there. I felt this terrible sense of grief. And then the following day was when there was this mass movement to go to Place de la République. So I went out to that. I felt scared. Yeah, I felt, is this absolute suicide to go to this mass square you know if the terrorists want to do another attack they're obviously going to choose there but I looked around and saw all these other people going there and I thought well yeah we do have to, this we what we have to do and it was also really healing really healing to be there with all these people what I saw in Place de la République was really was what Paris is which is people from everywhere, from lots of different religions and lots of different colours of skin, and that's what Paris is for me. In the days following the attacks, while dignitaries marched in solidarity with France, many locals showed their solidarity on terrasse, sitting in the famous open-air patios of bars and drinking in defiance, a demonstration of the Gallic shrug, proudly continuing business as usual, even in the face of danger. But this shrug isn't new nor is it the whole story. As a capital city, Paris has been the stage for the performance of political violence at many charged moments in the nation's history. When the stakes of violent attack in Paris are political, citizen responses to that violence become political as well. For Franck and Jacqueline, attacks from the recent past also pushed them to reflect on their responses in the present. For Franck, a 40-year-old architect, the recent attacks brought to mind the 1995 train bombings carried out by an Algerian extremist group. At the time, I had just arrived in Lyon, and the only way to get around was the subway. When I took the subway, I thought to myself, well, here we are. It took six months before I started taking the subway without really thinking about it. And it was kind of the same on November 13th. For Jacqueline, a 94-year-old retiree, the attacks brought back memories of the bombings in the 60s, the attacks were mostly during the war with Algeria. It was very tense, but there was still a part of France that wanted the liberation of Algeria. Before, they planted a few firebombs. Now, a guy driving a truck killed 80 people, hurt 210. Everything is amplified in every sense, in good as in evil. It also creates mistrust, and it's terrible because it is unclear who is doing it. It's very complicated. As colonial and post-colonial attacks, these bombings were considered a national issue, the painful transition away from the colonial past. However, the attacks in 2015 and 2016 were approached as international issues, although most of the assailants were born in France. 
After the attacks, the French implemented a number of national and international security responses, including a bombing campaign in Syria. The popular line in the French media was that these attacks were attacks not on people, but on the French way of life. But for people who fell outside of the stereotype of this lifestyle, young and white, expressing freedom through consumption, the message was confusing. Many young French people chose to resist by going out to bars and proving that they wouldn't let terrorists change their way of life. But what about French people who don't live like that, or can't? After the state of emergency was implemented, police officers no longer had to go through a judge to search private property. Since then, restaurants, religious spaces, and homes of primarily Muslim residents have been searched without warning by armed police officers. This has left Muslim residents in a difficult position. How do they show solidarity? How does France show solidarity to them? Both Danya and Yazine told me about their concerns. Here's Danya. that feel uncomfortable around like minorities, and that's still a thing. Et surtout maintenant, avec tous les, les, toutes les attaques terroristes, uh, I've noticed, like, if there's someone who looks Arab on the metro, like, people will look at them as if they're, like, threatened or, like, suspiciously. And I've noticed that. Also because I'm Arab. Like, I think it was the other day we were on the metro and there was, like, a family of, of I, don't, I don't know where they're from, but they were Muslim and they were on the metro and they had, like, suitcases with them. Et tout le monde les regardait, like, suspiciously, like, what are they doing? Like, why do they have suitcases? Like, no, no, no. Tandis qu'avant, that wouldn't be at all something people would be phased by, which is very sad. Donc une femme qui met le voile et qui rentre so dans a woman who wears the veil and goes into a subway with a backpack. We start looking at her. Maybe she has a bomb. I don't know what she has in this bag. What will she do? More and more it happens that people will say to them, yeah, go back to where you came from. So it went up a notch, this thing about profiling people. He's a Christian, he's a Muslim, he's a Jew. It's kind of divided and it gets worse. What I really notice is that it gets worse and worse and you need a solution for that. Because the problem is that they can't control people like that. It'll explode one day. Even outside of the Muslim community in Paris, there's been a groundswell of criticism about politicians manipulating the meaning of the recent attacks to advance their own agendas. Both Moena, a 26-year-old founder of the media platform Blacks to the Future, and Frank, a 42-year-old economic development manager, are immigrants to France. Moena is from Benin, and Frank grew up in East Germany. Both are concerned about the current political conversation. I have a friend who was celebrating her birthday and they were completely shot up. She's still in the hospital. She lost friends. She has friends who are seriously injured in amputation. And it's true that no one emphasized the fact that she's black and her friends were. These attacks affected young people, people who were the most open in theory. Now I really feel like we're in this process of political manipulation. It's strange because France wants to be so colorblind when in fact it's not. Everything is much more difficult to analyze. In the U.S., everything is clear. Black, white, Latino. You know what the communities are. Here, the one new category now is just Muslims, the black sheep that everyone has to hate. We never talk about black as it relates to black people. So we erase that all the time, everywhere, absolutely. You're unable to identify a problem in a racial way. Now I fear that the state will fall back on pure protectionism. It's always the same discussion around individualism, freedom, and security in the end. And I fear that the state will become unreasonable. I'll say something horrible, but it's a good illustration. With so few attacks, I'm ready to take this level of terrorism if that leaves me my personal freedom. 
euh, en gardant ma liberté à moi. Even before the attacks, immigration was a central political issue in France. But in the weeks after, the discussion really came to a head. Should France close its borders to immigrants and refugees? But because of colonization, immigration in France is complicated. Many of the immigrant populations in France have been there for well over a century. In order to house these new populations, the government began enormous social housing programs in the Parisian banlieue, suburbs just outside of the city. The projects that were built starting in the 1950s were called the Grands Ensembles. As the immigrant population grew, so did the racist sentiment against these housing projects. Today, many are run down and have reputations for crime and violence. When it was discovered that some of the assailants in the recent terror attacks had lived in the Grands Ensembles, public opinion soured even further. Saida, a manager at the social housing firm Paris Habitat, has had problems with public opinion in the northern banlieue Saint-Denis. Saint-Denis has a complicated reputation, particularly with the November 13th attacks, in which the assailants at the Bataclan all lived in Saint-Denis. There is a prejudice against that neighborhood, despite everything that's been done in the city to improve citizens' daily lives. For Jean-Claude, a professor in urbanism who specializes in social housing research, the desire to connect terrorism to housing projects like the Grands Ensembles is oversimplifying. I don't think that's a factor in the insecurity of the Grands Ensembles such that it is. There were many more significant things, much more specific to the Grands Ensembles in 2005 when there were revolts within these neighborhoods. Cars were burned. There really was a stigma against those neighborhoods, concentrations of poverty, concentration of exclusion. Terrorism was a problem that, in my opinion, goes far beyond urban issues and public housing. During one of the first reactions the French government had after the first attacks in January of last year, the prime minister said, we have created apartheid. That was the word that the prime minister used. In these neighborhoods, we have to begin to resolve this problem by better organizing what we call social mixité, by making sure the new residents of these neighborhoods will not only be poor people. That to me seems like an exaggerated reaction and a bit simplistic. Terrorist movements probably have as part of their root cause a desire for identity, to highlight an identity to people who otherwise are largely excluded from the workings of society through unemployment and need to identify with something. In part, no doubt, they identify with Islam, but it's not a given that they'll all become terrorists. Security goes beyond what the state can do to make us feel safe. It's more than police, more than curfews, more than terror warnings. It's also how residents interact with each other. And yes, the state does have something to do with that, but so does history. Family, social status, race, gender, religion, and immigration status. They all collide to give us our perspectives of the city, our ideas about what and where a threat to us might be. You just heard producer Jessica Myers, who, along with Adelie Posman-Ponte, provided a kind of anthropological survey of Parisian sentiment that attempts to lay out the complexities of understanding Paris, post-terror attacks. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. You can find out more information about Jessica's and Adelie's process and the rest of the Here There Be Dragons podcast on our website, at radioproject.org.
You may have briefly heard the term mixité mentioned in the previous segment. The term is a concept that can be roughly translated to social mixing. Mixité is a willful effort recognized in Paris that brings about intentional diversity and the mixing of different kinds of racial and class strata and backgrounds in the hopes of building bridges or a cross-pollination of ideas and values that arguably can lift those that need lifting and humble those that need humbling. But how exactly can that be implemented? Le Grand Voisson translates into The Great Neighbors. It's a space and a social experiment into mixité. Producer Gregory Mall takes his microphone to this former hospital, now turned into a mixed-use space, replete with emergency housing for the vulnerable, established businesses, art studios for the passionate, and much, much more. Mona has slightly tiled brown eyes, and she wears a colorful headscarf. We are not using a real name because she's undocumented. The 56-year-old woman from Morocco has no job and she lives in an emergency housing facility where she doesn't pay rent. Her apartment is on a site where, just eight years ago, a hospital was taking care of patients. That was before it closed in 2013. Mona has been living in other emergency shelters and she's mostly felt lonely in these places. But here, she's made friends. Bonjour, les Two girls are talking to Mona as they're walking by. Mona tells them that she's bought the tools to cut hair. One girl says jokingly that she's got big hair issues. Mona replies, No problem. Back in Morocco, Mona was a professional hairdresser. When she arrived in France in 2009, she had nowhere to live. And with the help of social services, she moved from a hotel room to shared accommodations. Those places provided a degree of shelter and safety, but she says there was little to do. This former hospital, on the contrary, is buzzing with activities. A hip cafe, art galleries, small companies with activities range from renewable energy projects to beekeeping. All of these have moved into the empty medical facility in the south of Paris, adjacent to the emergency housing where Mona and other vulnerable communities live. This place is called Les Grands Voisins. It means the great neighbors in French. The space is managed by three associations, Aurore, Plateau Urbain, and Yes We Camp. Aurore, the association which is at the origin of this endeavor, has vowed for almost 150 years to take care of people in precarious situations and help them fit in socially and professionally. It's almost entirely publicly funded. The public health agency that manages hospitals in the Paris area authorized Aurore to occupy the former medical facility until the city of Paris, which is the actual owner of the site, starts building its own project in it. Aurore has decided to use the place to experiment a new kind of social mixing. Mona didn't like the place so much at first. It was calm before. There was nobody. Everybody was still. Now this place has changed. It's good. I'm well at ease, because I'm listening to people, music. Mona is listening to the life and activities and the alleys between them. Lots of the buildings around used to be part of one of the biggest maternity wards in Paris. Her steps lead her to a room that's now used by an architecture firm. François Glory is the co-founder of Hapax Architectures. He and his colleagues got here in May or June of 2016. Before then, they didn't have a fixed headquarters. Glory tells me they were nomads. For now, this emptied hospital is their workspace. Here, they are building a solar lamp. 
Basically, there is a solar panel that gets sun all day, and in the evening, there is a night detector that triggers a projector that diffuses light on water bottles. The bottoms of these water bottles are filled with chlorine water, which makes the whole thing seem like a chandelier. Glory and his colleagues aren't the only ones building things in the hospital. Mona is entering what once was a home where doctors rested. Today, the house is being rehabilitated by volunteers from the different associations on the site, by the residents in the emergency housing facilities themselves, and even by a few people who don't live or work here. Aurélie Cordier is one of those working nearby the front door. She is a member of Aurore. This is going to be a big common living room where people will be able to chill and just in front there will be a gym. Aurore says that they don't know whether the city of Paris will keep the renovations they are making now or start all over again when it takes the site back in just a few months. In the end, the city wants the site to host social housing, a public park, a sports and a daycare facility and space dedicated to businesses. They are planning to invest more than $40 million in construction work, according to a report published on the city's website. When the work is done here, I'll make a couscous for everyone. It wouldn't be the first time that Mona is cooking for the community. She says that once, she cooked 75 liters of harira, a Moroccan soup. But she won't get to enjoy this space and these people for much longer. Temporary occupation is ephemeral, and I think that the fact there is a due date makes things even stronger. That is Jean-Louis Missica, the aide to the mayor of Paris in charge of city planning. Paris bad the former medical facilities site in 2015. Between the moment when a building is emptied to prepare for the works and the moment the works actually start, there can be as much as one, two, maybe three or four years sometimes. Pascal Dubois is a coordinator at the Association Aurore. The idea is to enable unconditional hosting of everybody who lives on the streets. She and her association are looking to alternatives to the poverty ghettos. Perhaps the persons they're helping might be able to join a company headed by a young Parisian. But it's an experiment. A little more than a year into the efforts, Pascal Dubois says that that mingling part of the project hasn't worked to their expectations. Of course, integrating different cultures and classes of society takes time. For people going through hard times, there's still much more to do to get them woven into the social fabric. But we found that integration works for people who still work and have contact with others. One way Aurore is encouraging social mixing is by launching a new currency. It's called the time currency. With this system, People exchange services against other services, or even against goods. One hour and a half of work, for instance, is worth a meal. Sometimes the people we work with have a hard time thinking what kind of work they can do, and will ask about their skills. Encourage them to think about skills they've always had. They can say, I'm a good handyman, or I can draw, or I can teach Romanian language or sewing. This whole rehabilitation project, however, costs real money. It adds up to more than $3 million a year, according to Aurore. It's an operation of delegation and substitution. Thomas Aguilera is a researcher at a political school in France called Sciences Po. He does research on public policies and housing in Europe. 
Paris's city hall accepted this project because for them it was a way to make sure someone was looking after the place and prevent the latter from being undermined or squatted. By providing social and cultural work in this tiny part of the city, Aurore is a substitute for the mayor's office in Paris. However, Aurore's arrangement is a pretty precarious one for the residents. You have to be careful not to fool around with people and force them to move every month or every year, when in projects we have around 600 people, who all have to find a new place to live. One time we say, yes, you have a place, but then when the project is over, sorry, you need to leave, we don't have a place for you anymore. Then it becomes worrisome and you need to be careful with what you do with people. Monaz bounced from place to place. In the 1980s, while she was still living in Morocco, she started having trouble walking. None of the doctors she saw was able to explain what she had. She comes to France where she gets two hip prosthesis, and that fixes her walking issues. She goes back being a hairdresser in Morocco, but 20 years later, her ailment demands that she goes back to France. There, she learns that one of her hip prosthesis has broken her pelvis. The doctor was young and inexperienced. He touched my nerves. My ankle gets paralyzed. I said, doctor, what's happening? My foot is paralyzed. I couldn't feel when he was doing something to me. He asked me, can't you feel it? I said, no. It's actually her right ankle that gets paralyzed. The young doctor tells her it's temporary. Another doctor says otherwise to her. He told me it's over, your job. Why did he say that? A graft and I'm paralyzed. That's it for me. That's when my life stops. Since that flood operation, a black splint has taken over her foot. She wears it almost at all times, even though it hurts her. Sometimes, standing and walking exhausts her. Mona says she gets more proper medical help in France than she would have had she stayed in Morocco. Despite her rehabilitation, she's been unable to find work and pay her rent. She says it's been helpful to live where she's at now. But by the end of this year, she, the other residents, the companies and the associations will have to leave the former hospital. Tonight at the Grand Voisin, the great neighbors, People are not thinking too hard about the fact that they'll have to leave in a few months. And hundreds are sipping wine or beer, getting a hot dog or putting spreads on bread. Three boys are jokingly pushing each other in front of a sauna that's been set up in the middle of the hospital yard. Mona is taking the opportunity to make a little money out of it. She spent the day and a good chunk of the night before cooking savory and sugary pastries from Morocco. And now is the time to sell them, at her small outdoor stand. Mona isn't making a lot of money from this culinary activity, and it brings her a few dozen euros. She can't live off of it, but she's happy to have this to keep her busy. Mona won't be living with the same bunch next year. She probably hopes to find people who can appreciate what she has to bring to the table, wherever she's heading next. That was producer Gregory Mall. Special thanks to Pierre Bianome and Zineb Alami, and Marie Che for providing the English translations. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. 
Hopefully in taking you to Paris, you got a better sense of how tumultuous and glorious it truly is. Beyond the Eiffel Tower, beyond the sometimes piercing notes of accordions. So, if you've gone to Paris, I'm envious. But aside from that, if this episode augments your understanding of the city in ways that we didn't hit, please reach out to us on our website, radioproject.org, and feel free to share your thoughts with us and with your peers. A very special thanks to Making Contact Organizational Advisors, Makani Timba, Bill Creighton, and Michael Stein. Lisa Rudman is our executive director, Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers, Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager, and Vera Tykolsker is our development associate. I'm your host, RJ Lozada, and thank you for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>